Here's a few quick notes about the show. Southern Girl Crime Stories is a podcast focused mostly on lesser-known true crime cases, consisting of cold cases, soft cases, identified Jane and John Doe's, along with missing persons and murder victims. You can follow the show on social media, on Instagram at Southern Girl Crime Stories, on Twitter at SG Crime Stories, or search Facebook for Southern Girl Crime Stories. If you're interested in getting some merch, visit my YouTube channel, or you can donate directly via Venmo or PayPal following the links in the description. You can submit case suggestions to southerngirlcrimestories at gmail.com or DM me on social media. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories along with photos of victims, suspects, locations of murders, and more. In July 1991, a deceased woman was discovered in room 121 in the now-demolished Whitehall Motel in El Dorado, Arkansas. Identification found with her was listed as Cheryl Ann Wick, which was later discovered to be one of her many aliases. She used many different names, such as Mercedes, which is how her friends at the time of her murder knew her, Cheryl Ann Wick, Kelly Lee Carr, Kelly Carr, Shannon Wiley, Cheryl Kaufman, and Sharon Wiley. Unable to determine her true identity, she became known as El Dorado Jane Doe. She was known to have lived in many different states before her death. As she moved around, El Dorado Jane Doe gave various versions of her past, making it difficult for anyone to help law enforcement determine who she really was. Many people, including forensic specialist Yolanda McClary, was dedicated to solving this mystery in order to give El Dorado Jane Doe her actual name back. In 2019, using genetic genealogy, a second cousin of the Jane Doe was discovered living in Alabama. The cousin did not recognize Kelly, but stated she resembled members of the family. Then on May 24, 2022, 31 years after her murder, her identity was finally announced to be a 23-year-old woman named Kelly. Her last name was not released out of privacy for her family. Kelly was born in 1968 in Virginia. Her mother's name was Brenda, and Kelly's father turned out not to be her biological father. Kelly never knew her biological father, and it's likely her father never even knew of her existence. Her mother and stepfather divorced in 1972 when Kelly was just four years old. Two months later, her mother remarried a man who became very abusive to Kelly and her younger sister. After seven years of marriage, her mother divorced and once again quickly remarried. While they were married, she allegedly had a baby girl that she gave away to nearby farmers. Her third husband killed himself just a few months after they married. For the next two years, Kelly lived with her mother and younger sister in Charlottesville, Virginia. Meanwhile, her mother collected on a life insurance policy on her third husband and went on vacation to Virginia Beach while her daughters were in the care of their aunt. They ended up remaining with their aunt for the next year and a half because their mother decided to remain in Virginia Beach. When Kelly was 15 years of age, her mother requested for her aunt to send her and her sister to Virginia Beach to live with her. However, only Kelly ended up going. She soon dropped out of school and began working at a jewelry kiosk on the beach. During that summer, they moved several times. 
Kelly reportedly had a drug addiction that landed her in rehab at the age of 18. At this point, she was living in Florida, and instead of returning to her mother after rehab, she went to Texas to live with another aunt. Her aunt was surprised to find out that Kelly had been dancing at clubs and had a fake ID with the name Cheryl Wick on it. While in Dallas, she was arrested for prostitution and met a man by the name of James McAlphin. He was allegedly a pimp who put Kelly in the emergency room multiple times following domestic violence. After leaving Dallas, she traveled to Shreveport, Louisiana before going to El Dorado in early 1991. She also worked as a topless dancer in Little Rock, Arkansas prior to her death and was found to have lived with a family in Irvine, Texas. In June 1991, Kelly left McAlphin and moved in with a girlfriend, but McAlphin continued to contact and threaten her. On July 10, 1991, McAlphin managed to lure Kelly to a motel with the promise of money. While there, he would murder 23-year-old Kelly and later be convicted of the horrific crime. A neighbor had witnessed the altercation when he stopped by the room. He saw Kelly trying to flee the motel, but McAlphin dragged her back into the room. The neighbor then heard a gunshot and saw McAlphin flee in his vehicle. None of her family knew that she had been murdered and had no idea where she was for the next three decades. On June 16, 1974, a man and his two teenage sons stumbled upon human remains while searching for driftwood in the swampy Burnt Bridge area on Singer Island in North Palm Beach, Florida. The remains had been scattered and scavenged around by animals, and the clothing found appeared to belong to a young female. Authorities were notified, and after an exhaustive search, missing parts of the skeleton were never recovered. However, holes shaped like bullet holes were discovered on the sweater that the Jane Doe had been wearing. In addition, it appeared that she had been bound to a tree at the scene prior to her death. The Jane Doe was believed to have been a white female between the ages of 14 and 25. She stood anywhere from 4 foot 11 to 5 foot 2 and weighed approximately 83 to 103 pounds. A small amount of tissue was present on the remains, which was used for a blood test. Unable to determine her identity, she became known as Singer Island Jane Doe and would go unidentified for the next 44 years. She was initially believed to be Bonnie Robinson of Detroit, Michigan, but she was later excluded. Over the years, many attempts were made to identify the young Jane Doe with no success. Her body was exhumed in April 2014, and in 2015, a DNA profile was developed, but there were no matches in CODIS. After developing the DNA profile, they were able to exclude several women as being the Jane Doe. In 2019, a new facial reconstruction of the girl was created by the Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office, but her image was not recognized by anyone. In December 2021, the Sheriff's Office sent the skeletal remains to Othram in order to develop a DNA profile that could be used to identify her. Othram built the profile, and in March 2022, Othram was able to provide investigative leads to authorities. The Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office continued their investigation and contacted potential family members. 
Additional DNA testing of family members finally confirmed her identity as 15-year-old Suzanne Gail Poole, who had been reported missing in 1972, right before Christmas. Suzanne was born on February 12, 1957, and disappeared in late December 1972. Although it is unclear whether she left on her own accord, as she had done once before, or if she went missing involuntarily. Suzanne was also known for hitching rides with strangers. She had lived in a trailer park in Broward County with her dad, mom, and a couple of brothers. When she disappeared, she left behind her clothing and pocketbook at a friend's apartment where she occasionally stayed. She was reported as a missing person soon after, two years before her remains were found. Her killer is still unknown, but she may be a victim of serial killer Gerald Schaefer, known as the Killer Cop. He is believed to be responsible for the disappearances of about 30 young girls and women. However, it is worth noting that Schaefer was known to kill his victims in pairs, and no additional victim was accounted for at the crime scene. Schaefer did, however, work as a sheriff's deputy in the same city that Suzanne disappeared from, and she was consistent with his choice of victims. Just months before Suzanne went missing, Schaefer encountered two teenage hitchhikers named Nancy Trotter and Paula Wells while he was on police duty. He warned the girls about the dangers of hitchhiking and offered to drive them to Jensen Beach the next day, and they agreed. On the drive there, he again warned them of hitchhiking and deviated from their intended route. He took them to a dilapidated shed deep inside a remote forest and swampland area of Hutchinson Island not far from the Indian River where he handcuffed and gagged them. He tied them to trees just like Suzanne was when she was found. They were both forced to stand on the tree's exposed tree roots to counter the pressure from the noose around their necks. He told them both that they would soon be raped and murdered. He then received an urgent police radio dispatch, informing him to report to the police station immediately. He left the girls and told them not to run away because he wouldn't be far down the road speaking with the person he intended to sell them to. When he returned two hours later, the girls had miraculously escaped. He quickly informed Sheriff Robert Crowder, I've done something very foolish, you'll be mad at me. He claimed he was only trying to teach them a lesson and had overdid the job. The sheriff and a lieutenant immediately proceeded to the area where they discovered Nancy swimming with her hands tied behind her back. Paula had been found by a trucker 45 minutes earlier and was already at the police station, which was a relief for Nancy to hear. Schaefer was dismissed from the force and arrested. He quickly posted bail and returned home to his wife. Before his trial could even take place, he abducted and murdered Susan Place and Georgia Jessup, and it's believed during this time, he murdered several other pairs of teenage girls as well. His crime spree spanned from 1969 to 1973, and he was eventually arrested and convicted of the murders and mutilation of 17-year-old Susan Place and 16-year-old Georgia Jessup. In December of 1995, he was stabbed to death while incarcerated by a fellow inmate. We may never know if she was truly a victim of his, but at least she now has her name back. On July 7, 1994, a woman hiking with her family in Montrose County, Colorado, stumbled upon a human skull. 
Authorities were notified, and upon investigation, additional human remains that were damaged and scattered by animals were discovered. Part of a woman's black vinyl belt and hair was discovered near the bones, which was the only clothing item found. The remains were located near the Smokehouse Campground on U.S. Forest Service Road 402 in an area known as Windy Point. The cause and manner of death were undetermined, as many bones were missing, but law enforcement officers suspected foul play. Investigators believe the woman was killed at another location, brought to Windy Point possibly in the fall of 1993, and then covered with tree limbs to conceal her whereabouts. Pathology reports estimated she had died about a year prior to her discovery. A reconstruction of what she may have looked like in life was recreated, but they were unable to determine her identity, and she became known as Wendy Point Jane Doe. Her identity would remain unknown for the next 28 years. In 2008, a forensic pathologist submitted bone, dry tissue, and hair fragments to the CBI in hopes of obtaining a DNA profile. However, he noted in 2008 that he had nothing to which those samples might be compared for purposes of identifying the decedent. He then appealed to the public for any information that may be helpful in identifying the Jane Doe. A second facial reconstruction was created in 2012, which also resulted in no further information. In 2020, her DNA was submitted in hopes of performing familial DNA testing. In 2021, analysts prepared the sample, although degraded, to additional forensic testing with hopes of using forensic genetic genealogy. Although tedious, it was successful. In April 2022, after letting her surviving sister know, an announcement was made that with the use of genetic genealogy, DNA, and dental records, her identity was revealed to be Susan Hobbs. Susan was born in 1949, and her family last heard from her in late May of 1993. She was a nurse that had lived in California since the age of 11, but moved to an apartment in Shelton, Washington in late spring or early summer of 1991 at the request of a friend who might have been her roommate in California. Susan then bought a trailer in Spanaway and moved in with the same woman in September or October 1992. In 1993, a male acquaintance joined the women at the home. Then, 45-year-old Susan kept in regular contact with her family through letters, expressing excitement about owning a home and sharing future-focused plans. But when the landlord of her mobile home park came by at the start of June to collect rent, he found the door standing open, debris inside, and drawers pulled open. It was later learned that Susan and the other two had up and left in the middle of the night. Susan's aunt and uncle, who also lived in Washington, knew something wasn't right. Susan wasn't the type to just leave and was not known to have a high-risk lifestyle. Her family scoured the area in which she was last seen, knocking on doors and finally receiving some information that was, as they said, concerning to them, really concerning. The family at one point placed a classified ad, hoping to provoke a response from her, had she been around to see it. The ad stated her father was critically ill and asked her to call collect. Her aunt and uncle filed a missing persons report in Washington on August 9, 1993, a report that was apparently cleared for unknown reasons in 1994. 
Fast forward to early 2003, private investigator Amy Johnson began diligently working pro bono on her case when Susan's aunt and uncle presented her a detailed file containing all the information they had on Susan and her disappearance. Through her extensive work, Johnson learned about the man who had joined Susan and the other woman at the trailer in March of 1993. It was strongly believed that Susan would not have left her new home voluntarily. In the interest of the active investigation, Johnson could not publicly disclose all of the information she developed. Johnson received a call from Colorado letting her know that it was discovered that remains found in Colorado indeed belonged to Susan Hobbs. Johnson stated that Susan was described as sweet, kind, generous, and caring. But she was naive, shy, and introverted and did not make friends easily and got tangled up with the wrong people. Hopefully, we will at some point find out details that led to her untimely demise, but as for now, at least she has her name back and her family has some sort of closure. On July 31, 2014, a jogger running along the Lake Michigan shoreline near Pier Cove discovered a human jawbone on the beach in Genghis Township just south of Westside County Park, Saugatuck, Michigan. The bone, which had washed up onto the beach, contained three teeth of which two had fillings. The bone was well weathered and deteriorated as if it had been exposed to the elements and in the water for some time. Forensic scientists could only determine that the jaw came from a male between the ages of 18 and 99. DNA taken from the bone was uploaded to CODIS, but unfortunately no match was found. Unable to determine the person's identity, he became known as Allegan County John Doe, 2014. Detective Ernestes of the Michigan State Police reached out to the DNA Doe Project for help determining the John Doe's identity, and they were able to match multiple distant relatives. The DNA also matched another set of partial remains that were recovered in Oceana County in 2014. With exhaustive lab work and genetic genealogy, he was finally identified by the DNA Doe Project by April 22, 2022. The partial remains were confirmed to belong to 59-year-old Ronald Wayne Yager, a fisherman who disappeared in August 2000. Mr. Yager was from the Fruitland Township, Muskegon County, and had gone fishing on August 1, 2000. He had launched his boat at the Whitehall Municipal Boat Launch, where his car and trailer were ultimately found and was reported missing the next day. Mr. Yeager had presumably drowned, but searches by the U.S. Coast Guard were never able to locate him. A few days later, on August 4th, his boat washed ashore on the Wisconsin shoreline nearly 80 miles from where it was launched and contained all four life jackets that he kept on board. The boat was found with its electric kicker motors still engaged and two downriggers trailing 200 feet of line. His partial remains were returned to his loving family. On November 6, 1980, a burning body was discovered near Interstate 80 in Wolf Creek Township, Pennsylvania. An autopsy determined the victim was a 16- to 19-year-old white male who had third-degree burns on 70% of his body, but he could not be identified at the time. In 2007, a DNA profile was obtained with evidence collected 27 years earlier. 
Fast forward another 12 years, using advancements in technology, the victim's DNA profile was sent to Parabon Nanolabs for DNA phenotype testing and a genetic genealogy screening. A first cousin of the victim was identified and contacted, which led to the identification of the John Doe. His real name was Edwin Rodriguez, who was from Chicago, Illinois. Further investigation identified a family friend named Nestor Quintinall. It was discovered that Quintinall and 18-year-old Edwin had left Chicago for Florida in the fall of 1980. After they left, Edwin's family never heard from him again, and Quintinall returned without Edwin, strangely denying he was ever even with him. Quintinall would later be arrested in 1993 on an unrelated charge for an assault with a deadly weapon. During the investigation, it was determined that Quintinall killed Edwin after leaving Chicago together. The DA announced in May 2022, 42 years after the murder, that had Quintinall not died in Florida in 2002 at the age of 71, he would have definitely faced homicide charges. Unfortunately, details are light, but it would be interesting to know how they determined Edwin was murdered by Quintinall especially since traveling from Chicago to Florida does not even remotely require going to Pennsylvania where his body was found. As a result of the positive identification, Edwin's remains were returned to his family in Chicago, officially closing the case. Thanks for joining me today on Southern Girl Crime Stories. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories, along with photos of victims, suspects, location of murders, and more. As always, your support is very much appreciated, and I look forward to seeing y'all next time.